Welcome to the Untoxicated Podcast. <laughs> well, I'm Sherry Salis, and that was my husband, Matt. We have questions about the impact of alcohol and addiction on relationships. If you have those kinds of questions, too, you're in the right place. Here we go. Summer is here, Sherry. Woohoo! <laughs> Are you excited? I don't know. Kind of, sort of. Memorial Day, the start of summer. Yeah. You know, it's not really the start of summer. It's still I know. technically spring. Yeah. But it's June always... June 21st is the start of summer. It's always felt like the start of summer, hasn't it? Yeah, I suppose. Um, huh. With it. The unofficial start to summer. I the think unofficial how start to summer. How it's referred. You sound like a Johnsonville Brat commercial. Yeah. Yeah. Except I won't talk about their sausage, bacon thing. Did you have a bad experience? No, I just... I don't know. I find it awkward. Oh. Okay. Sausage bacon shape just seems weird. But Hmm. they've got a commercial that talks about that. Gotcha. Well, you know, me uh, linking Memorial Day to the start of summer definitely predates my drinking. In In the recent years, or I don't know, I guess you can't say recent, the past several decades, uh, certainly there was a lot of drinking when it comes to Memorial Day weekend. But I even remember... Like, as a kid, do you remember, like, city pools opened on Memorial Day weekend? Yeah. Yeah. So, and where we grew up, school got out on Memorial Day, or right before Memorial Day, right? Is that what it was for you? It was not for us. <clears throat> I remember graduating in June. Oh, really? Um, so my school sometimes did end because of Memorial Day, maybe not, you know, being towards the end of the May. Sometimes we got out before, but I remember going back to school... After the Memorial Day weekend. Oh, yeah? Yeah. Well, I... I remember, like, especially my senior year in high school, because we wanted to go to the pool, but it wasn't open that last week of school because all the lifeguards were students, so... Oh, so you couldn't open so the pools for they, Memorial they, Day. Well, they had to open on the weekends. Oh. Just like here, we've got some things that are open only on weekends that are yeah. summer activities, like the amusement park and... Well, there's no doubt but, that there's a shift to summer thinking when it comes to both Memorial Day and the end of school. I mean... You and I are parents and have been for a long time, and I think a lot of our audience is parents, so they can probably relate to that. But there's a shift that happens in summer, and that's what we want to talk about today. You know, I I really, I was thinking about this the other day. I call myself permanently sober, <coughs> and I really don't have temptations to drink. I have fully vilified alcohol in any quantity. Moderate drinking, you know, indulgent drinking, whatever. I've fully vilified it in my head and consider alcohol to be a poison in any quantity. So there's <clears throat> there's not a lot of temptation going on for me anymore. But I was thinking about the other day, what would make me drink? And it would have to be a perfect storm. It would have to be low blood sugar, high stress, just really feeling terrible about myself. Probably something really tragic would have had to happen. And, you know, I would, I would have had to have lost faith in the work that we do to, to help people find recovery and sobriety. So, like I said, perfect storm. Things that just aren't ever going to line up. But even though I don't really think relapse is in the cards for me and I try to stay humble enough not to, you know, risk re- relapse because overconfidence can be one of the things that causes it. Um, I still have to recalibrate when it comes to shifting to the summer. I guess I don't have to, but I I like to. I like to change my mindset from the way you think about the winter months and say, okay, summer's here. Here are the things that are going to be happening around you that you've got to be prepared for to avoid drinking. Does the shift to summer do anything for you as the spouse of an alcoholic, former alcoholic? Does it bring back memories or are the triggers different is anything I mean I'm five years sober so maybe you've moved past that I think the only thing that would have been a little bit of a trigger or an issue would have been that Memorial Day weekend and then the family vacation that we would take to see your family on the lake Um, those would have been the only things I think because honestly I don't think that you're 
drinking shifted that much in the summer because you still worked or we still owned the bakery. Yeah. So you were still... It's not like we took the summer off. Right. So you were still just drinking more normally. Um, maybe just a few incidences of you mowing the lawn and really enjoying your beer on a hot day. Or, you know, um, so you would have had a couple extra. But not a whole lot. I think that maybe for me the only shift also that I could think of would be that the kids would be here. And they would be a little bored and I would have that guilt and that would cause arguments because you would be so focused on you because drinking <laughs> is a selfish act. I'm so and selfless. You know, um, so like on the days that you would be home with the kids and you would be trying to get paperwork done for the bakery, you wouldn't do anything. And on the days that I would be home with the kids, I would want to do something fun, summer-like. That's so funny how you just described that. I wouldn't do anything. Well, I, I, I mean, with the kids, yeah, wouldn't do anything with the kids. Yeah. Yeah. It's just interesting how our, you know, the way you describe that is different from the way I would describe that. I would describe that as I would, was doing things for the kids, working to put food on the table, but I get what you're saying. I mean, that there is a, a bit of a, I always say this, a gender component to it, but I believe that. And so that's interesting. The mindset shift that takes place for you during the summer. Well, we are going to talk about not just summer in general, but vacations specifically. What I'd like to do, Sherry, is just kind of run through some of the bad experiences that we had in the summer when I was still drinking. I think that that's something that a lot of our listeners will be able to relate to. And it helps me personally to do this mindset shift because, you know, I don't understand it fully, but the human brain does a really good job of locking away bad memories and only bringing the pleasant memories to the forefront. So when I talk about a mindset shift for summer, the the thoughts of sitting on the back patio and having beer on a sunny Saturday afternoon, those are easy to conjure up. Or good experiences we had with our friends and neighbors at summer parties, those are easy to conjure up. The traumatic experiences are more difficult. And so when you just live in the positive experiences, then I think relapse becomes a lot more realistic and, you know, it's a lot closer. So I want to talk about some of the tough times that we've had as a reminder, a way for me to do that recalibration and reset to, um, okay, it's summer. This is why we don't drink in the summer. Does that make sense? Yeah. 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 Okay, great. Um, so I, th- I made a little list of experiences that we had in the summers of of years ago that didn't go so great. Do you remember the house next to us um, has ha- we've had a lot of neighbors in that house. Do you remember when that the there was a, a group of young people in their twenties that lived there, and the the guy that was there. I think they were engaged. I think it was a couple that was engaged now that I'm thinking about it. But he was really into craft beers, kind of the same as I was. And he was having friends over and he invited us over kind of last minute. And we said, sure. So we trooped over there, you and I and our four kids, <laughs> at this party with a bunch Young of 20-year-olds. Yeah. And they were just barbecuing, listening to music, playing yard games, just hanging out <laughs> in the backyard. But he and I realized that we had a similar passion for craft brewed beers, you know, local Colorado brewed beers. And we got to talking about them and sampling them and, you know, what, maybe two or three or four beers on a Saturday afternoon evening and then head back and put the kids to bed turned into many, many beers for me. And you actually did bring the kids back around the fence and put them to bed And I think you tried to get me to come a couple of times, but Mm -hmm. you gave up on that pretty fast. I mean, it wasn't like I was driving anywhere. Right. But I think you were disappointed that I didn't come back. Is that right? Yeah. And then, so you had to deal with all the typical, right? You had to deal with putting the kids to bed by yourself. And they were younger, certainly. The younger two were quite young at the time. Mm -hmm. And... And then the really traumatic part, I remember I remember I kind of overstayed my welcome 
I was so enjoying the beer and the conversation and I could tell that they were having conversations that didn't include me. I mean, these I was basically, I mean, we were invited, but I was more or less crashing the, you know, after party part of the party when the, you know, these good friends were just talking and I'm still sitting over there drinking this guy's beer. And then I came home and I like, I got in the back door, but then I just sat at the top of the the, the half flight of stairs in the back door in the kitchen and like screamed for you. Do you remember that? I do, but that was wouldn't have been the only time that you did that. But Oh, that yeah. was a recurring yeah. theme? That was at least happened once. One more once time. more? Yeah. Yeah. And so did you like rush out of bed to come out so that I would stop screaming so I wouldn't wake the kids? Yes. Is that basically what happened? Yes. Yes. And then how did that go? Just dealing with drunk Matt at 2 o'clock in the morning? Yeah, probably probably a little earlier than 2 in the morning because I feel like it was a Sunday night. Um, that oh, party it wasn't happened. a Saturday night? I don't know. I feel like that one was and I don't remember. And then... Remember, You're I probably right, because I struggled mightily on Sunday Yeah, I was going to say, Sundays were really hard for you. And I feel like that was also um, a time in which one of our neighbors at the other end of the block had had a birthday, and somebody brought the this elderly couple, like, this huge cake for her birthday. Okay. So she brought some down, and I remember... But again, this could be another time, too. Could be mixing, that you're, mixing times. Yeah, but you're, like, eating this cake like it's... Like it's a bowl of salad. Like you don't care. You're just and I was like, what the fuck? You know, this, you shouldn't be eating cake like this. It was disgusting and gross, and and not for me. And not for you. Too. It was kind of for the kids. You know, I mean, that's the whole reason she suggested that we bring it down. That she brought some down. So, and then you got mad about the cake later on. I got and, who ate this cake? Is that what? No, I was mad you're about? like, why do we have this cake? I'm like, well, you know, why do people give us stuff like this? They think we're poor. You know, I'm like, no, she wanted to share oh, good. the cake. I was able to work financial concerns yeah, into so, it. so I'm like, no, she just wanted to share the cake with the kids, you know? That is funny that I used to have that mindset. I mean, people have always given us a lot of things. One of the reasons is we live in Denver proper. We don't live in the suburbs. There aren't as many kids in Denver proper as there are in the suburbs. So like on our street, we've got the only, well, not now, Yeah. but back but then we, we had only, the only yeah. kids. So of course people were bringing stuff to us. We're yeah. the we've got the Hoover vacuum cleaners, uh, eating wise. Yeah, and we can... had yeah, it wasn't just like food, but it was clothes because like we had kids that were younger than some of our friends that like because we continued. They stopped it to maybe three. We continued on with three and four. So yeah, so I remember like that was part of it. And you're just talking about <coughs> that sounds so like me to be. Plowing through cake, like you said, like I was just shoveling in salad, and then it, after I got done eating it, then be mad that it existed mm-hmm. and mad that somebody brought it. Well, to us. and then you know I had to listen to the whole story about how you were upset that this young guy wasn't including you in his craft brew business that he was maybe going to start. Oh, he because oh, he was going to do like it or or try, and you're like, oh, I know all this, and I'm like, bullshit, you don't know any of it. I got a book for you, stupidly, a book for you, homebrewing for dummies, like you years mean you ago. Enabled, so all of this is your fault, yes, Sherry. Is yes, that what you're saying? I enabled. It was well before you know. I thought that there was an issue. I mean, right. I I knew that you overdrank, but I thought, well, maybe if he put some arts and crafts and into it, you know, and it was a time thing, he would appreciate it more and savor it. Like you teach kids to garden and grow their own food. So then they appreciate the food and then they like foods that maybe they would never try. So I guess that was the mindset there. But I remember you you were kind of like upset that you felt like offended that he wasn't going to invite you. He's just sharing his idea with me and I'm trying to bully my way in and mad that he won't let me. Yeah. Yeah. I don't think he drank as much as I did that night. Yeah. He probably didn't. He didn't seem like he was a big drinker like that. Yeah. Yeah. But I, so all kinds of bad things. So we're having this conversation and I'm shoveling in cake at whatever midnight or whatever, whatever terrible time. (laughs) Definitely sounds like me. Um, Sounds like drunk Matt. Sounds like drunk Matt. We had a few uh, Independence Day memories that I wanted to talk about. One, one uh, 
inactive addiction and one during one of my attempts at sobriety that ultimately failed. Both times were uh, events that we attended at our next door neighbors on the other side. <laughs> and the we if we walk just to the other end of our block and we stand in just the right spot in one of our neighbor's driveways, we can see fireworks on Independence Day. So we don't have to drive anywhere. And so all of our neighbors kind of meet at that end of the block and stand in that neighbor's driveway and watch the fireworks. And I remember we had been next door. Uh, they had all their friends over and we knew a lot of their friends. It was just kind of a nice little social gathering, but definitely lots of heavy drinkers in attendance mm-hmm. and it probably started out as beer, but wasn't just beer. I'm sure there was whiskey and vodka there. And I had a tendency, especially when I wasn't driving and I was really comfortable in a setting to kind of, I don't know if I'd say get bored with beer, but I could see that other people were consuming something that was going to hit me even harder. And so I'd want in on that. And I'm pretty sure I drank whiskey that night. And we watched the fireworks and just, again, similar situation. You had to come back home with the kids eventually. And I stayed over there way, way late. I remember sitting in their living room um, like everybody else was gone. Maybe me and I think there was another couple that was sleeping over at their house because they lived out of town. Mm-hmm. And we're still... And in this case, I wasn't overstaying my welcome. I mean, the host was drinking whiskey and I was drinking whiskey and we were telling nonsensical stories and it was just kind of a repetitive bad situation. And then similar, just kind of came home obnoxious drunk. And that's a that's an important one for me to remember because I do love the summer holidays. I love Memorial Day. I love Independence Day. I love Labor Day. And, you know... It's one of those things where it started out as nice as nice could be and ends up just drooling, slobbering, you know, I was probably irritated at something, mad about something, and just kind of obnoxious drunk. Do you remember that evening? No, I do not. Sorry. Those happen too often? Yeah, I guess it was, I feel like every time, because that neighbor, they always had really great alcohol. Like high end, top shelf, I think is what you call that. Like top drawer, yep. Top shelf. Like so you were always impressed with their alcohol collection and what they had. So a lot of the times when you came back from theirs. But I don't remember that one in particular. I remember another time in particular at their house on Fourth of July that and I don't know if that was your other story, but Well what why don't you tell it? Or tell oh, I was just gonna say we were you were on the front porch swing at one point talking to a fairly new set of neighbors that moved in across the street. So I was a little embarrassed. I knew that they didn't drink the way that you oh, guys was, drank. And then... I was like slurring and stuff? Yeah. Maybe that was the same night and it was just earlier. Yeah, I think but, it was. But was this was not the time where they were setting off firecrackers or something, was it? I don't know. I don't remember that part. Yeah. Yeah. I remember I I wasn't the only one in that crew that had the tendency to kind of get angry oh, yeah, yeah. after drinking too much. And it could be about who the Rockies chose as their starting pitcher yeah. or politics or just any, like, just, you know, it's one in the morning and we've been drinking for eight hours and we're getting mad about something like that. Yeah. I wasn't the only one over there that would kind of um, do that. Yeah. We'd get all riled up and... Just ugly. The one I wanted to talk about in a failed attempt at sobriety was this was one of the times, or I think the main time when I decided I was going to drink non-alcoholic beers and I was going to become an expert in non-alcoholic beers and know all the non-alcoholic beers and have a different one for every occasion. And so rather than tell... Different one of the three yeah, that were out there at the Back time. at the time, there were yeah. very limited options in non-alcoholic beers. Not like now when there's hundreds of them, which is great. I'm, I'm excited for the time that we now live in. Not that I really drink any of them, but once in a while, if I'm out, I will. But rather than, you know, there's so much stress in early sobriety on how you're going to communicate with people. How much are you going to say? We talk with people all the time. You have to have multiple plans 
in the event that you're going to be in a social setting in early sobriety as far as what you're going to say. Because you might have, I went into situations and I know lots of people that go into situations with this is what I'm going to say. I'm going to tell everyone that I just don't feel like drinking and I'm just going to leave it at that. And then you get in the situation and you're getting kind of egged on and, and that doesn't feel like enough. So I tell people all the time, <clears throat> have multiple things that you can say so that you're ready in any situation. I have said, I am on antibiotics and I can't drink right now. I have said, I've got to make a run to the airport and so I'm not going to drink tonight. Or I'm sick. Or I've got an early meeting. Little white lies. And I'm not a fan of lying, but this is an exception for me. This is an area where I think the goal of sobriety is more important than the complete honesty in a situation where drunk people are trying to convince you to drink. So I always recommend to people to have multiple things in their back pockets that they've thought through because the situation might not be exactly as you're anticipating and the, the line that you are going to use might not feel right. But so at this segment in my attempt at sobriety, the, I was drinking non-alcoholic beers. So rather than tell people that I'm not drinking and here's why, I just kept coming back home to refill fill my beer cup. I, I wasn't drinking out of the bottle. I'd pour the bottle or can or whatever it was into my cup, and then I'd go next door, and I'd look like everybody else with a frothy amber liquid, carbonated liquid in my cup, and just, you know, I'd have to make an excuse for why I had to go home every 45 minutes, and I just happened to come back with a full beer. And, you know, that's... That's not something I recommend, first of all. I don't recommend hiding the fact that you're not drinking. Um, maybe in a really short-term, really tough experience situation, then maybe that would work. But all it is is a constant reminder that you're different than everybody else and that you're trying to hide it. So there, it actually layers more shame on than not. Um, I remember some really obnoxious people at that event that night another neighbor from across the alley in the back that was particularly like arrogant he was drinking wine and acting snobby and do you have any recollection of the event that I you're talking about do you remember that and that may have been the time that they were trying to set off like loud firecrackers or bottle rockets or something and we were like trying to get our kids because they thought it was funny you know to have a 10 year old and a 12 year old boy over there kind of and you know interested in bottle rockets and stuff and yeah and, and nothing I we want more than drunk people yeah with our young kids and fireworks yeah great combination so i think maybe that was the time that we had the fireworks but i remember like that yeah that sort of crowd it was like you know just uncomfortable yeah and I think you. this was, in my early sobriety, I was big on you have to yes, drink so I when was, we go to places because we can't both look like freak shows. So yeah. I was probably forcing you to drink that night. Yeah. And uh, we were drinking, I think they were making margaritas with really nice tequila, but yeah. I would. they were just really strong because even if I do, it did drink an alcoholic because I, I didn't like the flavor of alcohol. I liked all the fruity compliments that were in the beverage but not really the alcohol flavor so I remember like pouring off and pouring more of the mixer and I had such a stomach like acid stomach that next morning because I had drank so much more of the margarita mix with the lime juice in there than the yeah do you remember the birthday party we went to at the clock tower cabaret mm -hmm. that may or may not be summer but in my mind it is so if it's not let's just go with it because <laughs> That's not super important. It was summer-esque. And I remember it was an open bar. And I was drinking a particular beer, which I can't remember what it was. But I drank I drank till they ran out of them. I remember that. It wasn't... Let's describe this place. They, It was, it was a bar, but they usually did... Um, Cabaret shows and drag shows. But this couple <clears throat> had a birthday and it was very close together and it was a 40th birthday so we are dating ourselves because this couple was right around our age maybe a year or so two it was younger. about 10 years ago so it was about 10 years ago um but they had rented the the, the whole, whole place place for all of their friends and it was a ton of our friends from church yeah but i'm 
I'm not going to tell you my memory because I know it was not summer. So, lots of drinking. Mm-hmm. And um, you, I think you had quite a bit to drink, too. Yeah. We were getting a ride home from one of the other couples that was there. We had been dropped off by our babysitter, actually. Yes. And then I just remember <clears throat> that I drank them out of whatever brand of beer it was that I was drinking. Let's say it was like Amstel or something. Something I don't normally drink, but it was the only thing that they had that was close to what I would have liked. Mm-hmm. And I ran them out of it. <clears throat> and I mean, I wasn't the only one drinking it, but right. I mean, this is a professional place. Well, I'm sure know. they probably said we're buying this X amount of cases. And so it was open, but it was still like a cooler oh, full of stuff. I don't think stuff. so. I, think I don't think they were, were. You think so? I think they were out. Mm. But anyway, so then we get the ride home and I passed out in the car on the way home. Our church friends driving us home. Just that's right. Church friends that we had partied with before. I don't. I don't mean <laughs> to paint this picture that we were Puritans or anything. Um, they were definitely drinkers and partiers. But and then I'm sure it was that one of those where we played it off. Oh, Matt works hard. He had, he had a long week. He was probably tired when I passed out in the car. Do you remember? I don't remember what was said. Yeah, I don't remember what was said. But I remember that was. After that, that was one of those events where the next time I saw them, I was sure to be clean shaven and freshly showered and bright eyed and bushy tailed and nothing to see here. Let me tell you guys about all the things I've accomplished since the last time I saw you. Mm -hmm. And that, that living in that like fakeness is so hard. We've talked a lot about how like our house is usually cluttery, not dirty, but cluttery. And there's a... There's a lack of um, need that we feel now to have everything in its place. But back then when I was drinking, everything always had to be in its place because we had to give the facade to anyone, any outsider looking in that there's nothing to see here. Everything's great. And let me just tell our listeners, our house, like you said, isn't dirty. It's cluttery. Because if you don't have teenagers... Teenage boys have lots of big messes that they don't care about cleaning up. Indeed. And you can say, would you like to put that stuff away? And they will answer, no. Yeah. You and I have a different parenting style there. So, then it stays out. Yeah. Because I refuse anymore because they're big boys and they can put it away. But. Or I go, I'm not denying that you're right. But I do. But back when I was drinking, you and I went to extraordinary efforts to keep everything Tidy well, and in its place, because if somebody were to pop in, we wouldn't want to give the impression of chaos, which could then lead to them thinking, oh, I wonder if there's excessive drinking taking place yes. in this house. Well, and I do work more now than I did, you know, outside of the house than I did when, we were, when the kids were younger. But also, you were kind of a hard ass about it, because I didn't want to give you any ammunition. Oh, look at you. You can't even keep the house in your home, you know, three or four days a week. So I certainly made sure the house was clean and organized as much as possible because you could be kind of a dick about that and throw it up in my face. I think it's fair to say that we both cared, and maybe me more than you, that the house was in order more back then than we do now. Now I don't care. There's a few. I like the kitchen counters. I I tend to be the kitchen cleaner, and I like the kitchen counters to be wiped and in order. And what like my dresser? I like to control what's on my dresser. I'm not saying it's neat and orderly, <laughs> but I like a to printer be right now, in but... charge of what's on top of it. Yeah, That's but also it, legit. When we would be fighting, and my next my next move would be to clean because I needed to. That's how I processed it after the arguments and the stress. I'm a stress cleaner. I would eat, usually drink, and sit around sloth like. You would not eat. You you starve yourself after not. Not like you're yeah, trying to lose weight. You just don't have an appetite after we've had an argument and you clean. Yeah. And I think it's really funny. We've we've met so many people that have similar experiences. We know a number of people that take it to the next level. They don't just clean. They paint a room. Yeah. They like, this isn't even going to Remove that memory. But that's right. Yeah. Uh, yeah. But that's typical for the loved one. Yeah. So our house was a lot cleaner and I was a lot skinnier when you drank. <laughs> Uh, that's funny. Um, yeah, so that was the the clock tower 
birthday party passed out in the car. That was good. I want to talk about vacations now. And when I say vacation, let's be clear. For us, for a lot of years, vacation was we took one week and we took the kids to see your mom and sister and that side of the family. And then we took another week and we went to see my parents and sister and that side of the family. So we weren't going on elaborate vacations anywhere. We were just making the pilgrimage back home, basically. And I remember, oh, this might get hard. I remember a lot of really bad, difficult vacation memories. Um, I remember one in particular that you might not remember this. I, I'm sure I had been drinking, but I don't, I know I wasn't intoxicated because you and I were like setting up the beds for the night at your mother's house and kind of trying to get the kids settled down. And I was really impatient and like trying to get it done. And you got a call from your best friend from high school, Stacy, who, uh, and you like stepped outside of your mom's house to talk to him. Stacy's a guy. I don't know. I feel like, uh, it's a gender fluid name, so you can clarify, but yeah, great guy. Great. Yes. Big fan. Yes. Anyway, you stepped outside to talk to him. And when you came back in, or while you were out there, I was just like chomping at the bit, like, we're supposed to be getting the beds ready. Like, what is she doing? Why isn't she helping me? And when you came back in, I was just really short and nasty with you. And I I just think, you know, there was always so much like stress and discomfort when we were on vacation back when I was drinking. But that's an example of not my drunken buffoonery, my... um alcoholic brain, whether I had had anything to drink or not, I just lacked patience. I lacked compassion. Here you are trying to set up an opportunity to see someone that you, it was a former best friend that you rarely ever see and you're trying to reconnect and I'm being an impatient asshole about it. Do you remember that, that night? I, yeah, I remember that vaguely. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Maybe just because that's just one of those things you were always, even if you weren't drinking, just being on. Or just maybe I had being, a couple of beers, but you still have to walk on eggshells around me because yeah. I'm still going to be snappy and impatient and jerk-like. Well, just probably because of shame and you were always kind of jerky and embarrassed. Like, you were, you were always really hard to get along with when we were in my family because it's a small town and there's not a whole lot to do. I mean... Entertainment-wise, whereas at your parents, they had our kids had their cousins that were all very close in age and other adults to take care of them, so you could just kind of be a little bit on vacation. I had a lot more trouble um, getting along with your side of the family back when I was drinking. I I love your family. I have no trouble really getting along with with your side of the family now, and I don't know if there there definitely is a lot of shame involved with my active addiction. But I don't think that's the case there. It's just the brain chemistry gets tweaked and there's no patience. There's just no tolerance or patience or calm. Everything is on edge. Mm -hmm. So when I'm constantly on edge, there's so many things that you would do that would set me off that there's nothing wrong with the things that you were doing. Mm -hmm. And so that's one of those examples. We also had some, some bad times when I had drank a lot at your mom's house. One in particular, I don't remember. I think it was right toward the end, right before I quit drinking. But I remember being just drunk and unmanageable, even to the point, if I remember the story correctly, your mom was mad and wanted me to like go to a hotel. And she wanted me to stop drinking. And you were more in the camp. No, he needs to keep drinking so he'll pass out. Do you remember that? Was that the time that you drank when you were on that? call for for work for work probably yeah yeah i remember that and then in the midst of it all your mother calls me or you the house i think she calls because my mom still has a landline and you know this was several years ago so a lot of people still had landlines but she called the house your mom still has a landline right now well yes i that's what i'm saying like but um yeah i think that and my sister was out there because we had gotten back from state park you know that was a little further away and oh god yeah that was a nightmare and at least i think i had my sister on the same mindset of like just keep him drinking so he'll pass out Mm. but you were trying to convince your mother on the phone that you were fine and not drinking and 
Just a terrible situation. Yeah. And then I, I think we left the next day because I remember waking up, didn't we? And just being like, let's just get out of here. I just want to go. Mm-hmm. Oh, miserable drive home. So these are the kinds of uh, terrible memories that it's important to remember going into summer. Helps to recalibrate. And then, of course, one of the worst ever for us was the the time when you and I stayed up most, if not all night, before a trip to my parents' house. And to my parents' house, we had to fly. They lived further away. And the drive to the airport the next morning involved squealing tires. I, You and I were arguing and we were screaming. It was one of the rare times when we were outwardly arguing like that in front of the kids. You and I argued a lot, but we tried to do it behind closed doors. I'm not saying they didn't hear through the walls, because they did. I know. We weren't, you know, it was still traumatic for them. But this was one of the rare times where it was just in the open. Yeah, because we were hurrying to the airport and... And I was driving and I was surely still drunk. Yes, and... I had slept for a couple hours, but mostly I just drank all night and argued with you. Yeah, and you took the wrong exit because you wouldn't believe me that that it was the... an exit before and... I remember I just said, you know, maybe we should go to see a marriage counselor, which we know now is not what you do when you're in the throes of alcoholism because that's not going to help. Yeah. But that's when the yelling started. Yeah. That's when the yelling started. Because you suggested a marriage counselor? Yep. And then I like whipped the car around in the middle of the road. Going and said, we're going home, we're not going on this vacation. And then I whipped it back around the other way, changed my mind, and we headed back to the airport. Just really traumatic situations to put the kids in. Yep. It was awful. And then we we got to my parents, and I remember, I think my dad picked us up, and the whole way in the car from the airport to their house, I mean, that you could cut the tension with a knife. It was one of the times where... You know, you and I, not only had we argued in front of the kids, but we weren't doing a very good job of hiding the the pain that we were in from my parents, which I think more often than not, we did a reasonably yeah. good job of well, hiding and, that. And I think that you slept and I continued packing and I slept none. Yeah. And I got up and I made breakfast because it was an early morning flight and made sure the kids were up and I was up. That was a horrible situation and one that I will never forget in spite of the fact that I've probably got flickering memories of specifics. The the drive, the traumatic nature of the drive to the airport, I remember all of that in pretty you know, pretty vivid detail. I remember the kids, you know, crying and being really upset in the back of the car. It was one of the worst experiences of our marriage for sure and I think I think it's important that we share it in this context too a lot of people when they're considering their drinking or they're considering the drinking that they're tolerating in their relationship they they compare the their experiences to a rock bottom drunk experience like a terrible car accident or a DUI or, you know, I, the list goes on and on of terrible, traumatic things that can happen when we drink excessively. And it would be easy to look at what you and I just described and say, yeah, that's awful. That's unacceptable. That is no good. But I'm not sure that's alcoholism and maybe moderation is possible and maybe giving rule, setting rules around drinking would have a chance at success. And I'm here to tell you, and I think that you'll agree with this, Sherry, if you've had an experience like we just described, there's no going back. The drinker has crossed the line into addiction. It's not okay. The only solution to save the family, to save the kid's mental health, to save the marriage is sobriety. And sobriety is not the solution. Sobriety is the prerequisite that allows you to get in and do the work, the resentment work, the trust building to recover the marriage. But so if you've had a traumatic experience like that and you say, yeah, but, you know, we didn't wreck the car and there was no arrest and 
we we made it on the vacation and after a couple of days we all cheered up and everything was fine you're kidding yourself if you think that means it's okay well do you remember what started that argument no so we always have a talent show so we were supposed to be working on our talent and we were in our family room in the basement in the downstairs working on our talent and all the, and the kids were in bed and it was getting late at night. We knew we needed to get to bed and, um, you wanted to have sex and I said no. And that's what started it. Yeah. Yeah, you're right. I do remember now. Not the only time that happened either. Yep. So you were selfish and wanted something and you couldn't say no. So again, if you are in a situation where you can't say no to your spouse without it being a traumatic experience, it is, you know, so much bigger than alcohol too. Because their brain is just hijacked, completely hijacked, that they can't even respect you enough. To understand that you do not want to have sex. Not not just sex, you know, after you finish your practicing your dancing and you get into bed. But, like, at that moment. That's how selfish alcoholism. In that moment, on the couch, in our family room. You wanted it then. That's how selfish alcohol is. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah. And those, those are, we talk a lot about red flags that we ignored. That's a great example of one where it's easy to say, oh, this was a one-off. This happened. It was bad. It was miserable. But because I think this is important to mention too. It wasn't like I was drunk every day. It wasn't like I was drunk every, I mean, I, I was in, I was mildly intoxicated every weekend but it wasn't like I caused chaos every day or every weekend we would we would go long stretches where yes I drank and drank consistently but we would motor through just fine yeah without these arguments there would be disgust and I would be irritated sure but it wouldn't be a big argument but but there was enough space between these traumatic instances where it was easy not easy but doable to compartmentalize and say, oh, that was a one-off. That's not what usually happens. From my perspective, I would say, well, I'll just try harder. Let me see what rules I can put around my drinking to fix this. Mm-hmm. And if you're, you know, I, it's funny. I used to, when you'd see a celebrity do something stupid, uh, DUI or domestic disturbance or whatever, and they would immediately go to rehab, I would say, that's so dumb. You know, they're just trying to cover up the fact that they had a one bad night and they think they're an alcoholic now and they, they don't really think they're an alcoholic. They're just going to go to rehab to get the press off their back. Yeah. That's so stupid. But now I look at it very differently. If you're having a traumatic experience like the one we just described, or if you're having, if you're unable to accept no for an answer when you want to have spontaneous sex with your spouse, that it doesn't have to happen three dozen times before you recognize the red flags. One time is a red flag. That's not how um, civilized people with rational minds behave. Mm -hmm. And I see that now after having a relatively (laughs) rational mind and behaving civilized for for years now. There are lots of times where I want to have sex and you don't and I want to be spontaneous and excited about it and you're not in the mood. And you absolutely can say no now. In fact, there's a lot of situations where I wouldn't even bother to ask. And I don't mean to say that in a sad way. I wouldn't bother to ask because it would be disrespectful to ask. If if we're doing something where clearly there's no... Um, there's no sexual mojo in the moment. And just because the wind blows sideways and I get a little turned on, doesn't mean you are. And I know you're not. So why would I bother asking? Right. And then in recovery with all that we've gone through with the trauma of an experience like just, you know, you being told no and it turned into basically a two-day argument because you couldn't get what you wanted at the time. Well, that just leaves a whole bunch of negative um, thoughts and desires are squashed and you don't want to have sex. 
So when you've had bad sexual experiences and oh, traumatic yeah. sexual experiences, like in recovery, which is another thing, early sobriety, like just you can't get that back. So, which is another thing that as an alcoholic, I I couldn't understand. I couldn't understand the the lasting effects of my behavior. I would drink too much, do stupid things. Maybe I'd blame you for a while. I'd eventually come around to recognizing that it was my fault. I'd apologize. I'd lick my wounds for a while. And then I, the clean, the slate was wiped clean for me and I was ready to start over. And you I were compartmentalizing. could never recognize and that I was you were going to carry around pain and trauma and a lack of trust. And just find me to be an unattractive, disgusting human. I, I couldn't process that. That didn't compute. Mm-hmm. It certainly does now. It certainly does now. And I'm not, and, and I'm just going to say this because I don't want anybody to like, from both sides of the street. It's not when, when Matt describes himself as my viewing him as a disgusting human being. It was never the appearance thing. I, it was your soul. It was your, it was your being. I found that to be repugnant. Like but, who you had become when you were a drinker. Yes, but, like, I see drunk people now through sober eyes. Yeah. They're pretty disgusting visually, too, yeah. sometimes. Well, like, when they're sloppy yes. and... Yes. Yeah. Or eating bread-stuffed pepperoni sticks from Kilroy's Bar and Grill in Bloomington, Indiana, when they Just were... Just really... shoving them in. Yeah. Sauce and hot and... Well, eating a birthday cake, like... <laughs> or eating a birthday with cake. With a steam like... shovel, just <laughs> yeah. going to town. So that is, but it's, it's more than the... When you do look... When you are dressed, you know, and clean shaven that next day you know all i see is that ugly darkness yeah that's what was disgusting not your outward appearance that next day or two days or so the unattractive soul like you said great description well the last thing i want to say sherry i want us to talk about just briefly the reason that we are able to talk about this like this so openly the reason, from my perspective at least, is that there's no shame in any of this for me anymore. And I, I can imagine that there are listeners that are like, God, how can this guy not be embarrassed to talk like this? How can he not be ashamed? Well, you know, first of all, it took a lot, a lot of work, a lot of effort to get here. But the reason is, you and I have both learned to blame the alcohol and not like I know who I am as a human and I know who I am as a human a lot better now with years of sobriety because I don't have temptations to behave in that bad way. I don't, not only do I not behave in that bad way, but I don't want to behave in that bad way. It's not like I'm holding myself back from being rude and disgusting and short tempered and impatient and, you know, a sexual monster. Those, those thoughts don't cross my mind. So because in sobriety, I, you know, and and recovery, the work of recovery, I don't feel that way. It's really easy for me to say that's the fault of alcohol. And because you and I spend so much time in the recovery community working with people and we see it case after case after case and it's the same. It's the same over and over. I can't think of an example. I mean, sure, the details are different, but I can't think of an example where what we've just described isn't fitting for the people that we've met and work with the situations. And so it's one of the universalisms that we talk about how alcohol impacts people when they dedicate as much time and consistent consumption to alcohol. Like, like I did, it's how it works. So it's easy for me to blame the alcohol. That's one of the reasons there's no shame in this for me. And the other reason it's easy for me to talk about this so openly is I recognize that those positive thoughts, the positive memories of drinking, the sunny Saturday afternoon, <laughs> the beginning portion of a drinking session with neighbors and friends where everything's, we're laughing and we're just slightly buzzed and everything's joyful. Those memories are so at the forefront that I recognize it's important to conjure up the bad memories to keep me humble and keep me in the space that I am and to keep me from ever thinking, oh, maybe I've got this figured out. Maybe I've got this licked. Maybe I can try drinking again. And so I just know there's a, tons of people out there that avoid the past 
because they say, look, I've moved on. I don't drink anymore. I don't want to talk about the past. And I understand the desire to avoid the painful, but you you don't have to live there. You don't have to wallow in there. You don't have to, you know, make yourself miserable from just experiencing the past over and over. But if you don't go there once in a while, I don't know how you can stay grounded and humble and aware enough of the downfalls, like really viscerally aware of the downfalls. Watching, sitting across from you and watching you cry about the squealing tire drive to the airport morning does so much for me and my sobriety. I'm sorry that you have to go through that. And I never want to, you know, make you cry. But the fact that I can still see how painful that experience is, is a huge boost to my sobriety. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. It's a reminder that what alcohol did. Yeah. And what it does. Do you view it at all as a reminder of how far we come? Like when we, when we do these podcast episodes and you have to go to a bad place, does it like when you come out of it, does it make you feel like, Oh, I'm glad things are better or, or does it sink you for a while? It sinks me for a little bit, but it makes me very happy that we're in a different place. Sometimes I want, you know, you can't force it. Sometimes I would wish, like, I wish that it had happened so much earlier, your sobriety, so we could go back and have more time with the kids when they were younger Mm -hmm. and have a lot better memories than what they have to deal with and what I have to deal with. So hopefully our stories will like allow people to seek help sooner and, and have that realization that, you know, that there is alcohol destroying them and their families sooner. And it doesn't have to be, you know, a 10 year struggle for sobriety. Well, I just like to end by saying there are so many things about you that I admire. But right at the top of the list, Sherry, I admire your willingness to sacrifice like this for the sake of others. The feedback that we get on the podcast is always about how people relate to you, especially when it gets emotional for you. And I just, I am in awe of you for your ability and willingness to go there for the benefit of others. So thank you. And thank you for sticking by me. You're welcome. Love you. Love you. Before you go, we hope you'll consider these three resources. If you love or loved an alcoholic, we offer support and connection in our Echoes of Recovery group. Check us out at echoesofrecovery.org. If you are a high-functioning alcoholic seeking methods and connection in early sobriety, We're ready for you at ShoutSobriety.org. No matter who you are, there's something for you in our book, Sober Evolution, Evolve into Sobriety and Recover Your Alcoholic Marriage. Go to SoberEvolution.org. For my wife, Sherry Salis, I'm Matt Salis. Thanks for listening to the Untoxicated Podcast.